Holding a conch doesn't help you talk. Does the monarch butterfly outrank the king crab? Which animals don't need haircuts? Yes, I know what a group of crows is called. We should call an icicle a stalactites. I can't get enough of hibernation heart rate stats. Do geese ever fly east or west? Can any animals smell other emotions like ennui? Nature does not value reason. So many stars! Hello, and welcome to the 37th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast in decline, a podcast which is a shadow of its former self, a podcast wandering in the wilderness. But you know what? While it may be difficult to find a way to spin that stuff about it being in decline, being a shadow of its former self, I can say that as a podcast about the outdoors, it's a podcast that feels right at home wandering in the wilderness. So that's pretty good. Although wandering has a sort of negative connotation when used in the sense that I used it above, it doesn't really sound like the wandering is intentional, it makes it sound like the podcast is lost, which is, admittedly, how I meant it. And really, a good out-of-all-doorsman or out-of-all-doorswoman would rarely, if ever, be unintentionally wandering in the wilderness. They would be walking in a certain direction with a purpose because they would know where they were, where they were headed, and how to get there, etc., An outdoors podcast should be good at navigating in the wilderness, even in a metaphor. Well, only in a metaphor, really, because an outdoors podcast could never literally navigate its way around a wilderness. And I'm now becoming aware of the fact that this introduction is also wandering in a wilderness within a podcast that's wandering in a wilderness. And really, it's these exact kind of confusing digressions that crop up so frequently in this podcast that are the surest sign that the podcast is in decline, is a shadow of its former self, and is wandering in the wilderness in a bad way. But where did we go wrong? I know you think I'm going to blame Ben, Dwayne, the Ghost, Maya, Grang, Jason, and various other enemies of the show that have long worked to undermine it both from within and without, but instead I'm going to make a real effort to look at possible mistakes that I myself have made that could have prevented the podcast's precipitous drop. Am I sure that some or any of these reasons are the reason for the decline? No. But that's what I'm going to investigate, so let's get honest. And then as we take the podcast into the new year, that being 2018, maybe we can wring a resolution or two out of this analysis. Maybe some resolutions related to specific ways to correct these errors, if indeed they are errors and if indeed they are correctable. And if it turns out that the criticisms aren't legitimate or that the problems they address aren't correctable, well, then maybe we'll just resolve not to worry about them again. Anyway, Here are a few ways I might have caused or contributed to the decline of Out of All Doors. Number one. So one possible reason that the podcast is in decline is my near-complete lack of quality control. I realize this sounds like I'm blaming bad contributors again, but really I'm not, because they can't help it that they're bad. You can't just point at someone with no talent or ability and say, Contribute quality content now! But what you can do is not include their terrible content in your podcast over which you have complete creative control. But here's the thing, I've never exercised any quality control in this podcast, not even in its heyday when it was at the peak of its powers, so how would a total policy change get us back to where we were? Also, I mean, Cousin Ben and Dwayne maybe don't have it in them to be good, but there's nothing preventing them from prostrating themselves before me, begging my forgiveness, vowing to honor their initial vow to change their ways, 
recording a correction wherein they say my music is actually very good, and then making some inoffensive, if ultimately unhelpful, segments about photography. And I'm not just saying that because I have been personally aggrieved and want to feel like I've defeated them. I'm saying that because I think we can all agree that the podcast would be in much better shape if all that were to happen. Anyway, the point is that more quality control would mean more work for me, and I think we all know that that can't be the answer, because, as the old incontrovertibly true axiom, or whatever it is, says, work smarter, not harder. And my little addendum that I've found very helpful over the years is that in this context, as well as many other contexts, harder is a synonym for more. Uh, Number two, another area where perhaps I've gone wrong is by not figuring out an effective means of exercising the ghost from the podcast. I know that it hasn't inserted itself as much recently, but I think it's very possible that the ghost has actually cursed the podcast from within, and that the decline is the direct result of the curse, and therefore the indirect result of me not figuring out how to get rid of the ghost in a timely and effective manner. Now, of course, I have no idea how to change any of this, and no idea how to even begin finding out, but still... If you want to say that the decline of the show is the result of my failure to do something that I'm incapable of doing, then okay, I guess that's possible. Number three, another thing that might be hurting us is that people may have begun to notice the absence of apostrophes and the uses of the word your on the podcast description on iTunes. Now, those apostrophes have been gone since the very beginning, and I've never known what happened to them because they were definitely there when I wrote that thing. But I think it's possible that listeners have just recently noticed the absent apostrophes. Maybe they just learned about apostrophes, for example, and noticing that they're missing from those yours in the description has caused them to lose respect for us. And maybe that sense of the disrespect of our listeners has infected the entire podcast. And again, I don't know how to get those apostrophes to show up, so this is another probably uncorrectable issue, but still, it is probably my fault somehow. Number four, maybe the show is in decline because it's too much about itself and not enough about the outdoors, and additionally, the tone of that self-reflexive content is often bitter and self-pitying. But if that were true, then this very introduction would be part of the problem, thereby invalidating its utility as a means of uncovering the problem. And yes, that logic is correct. Look how intelligently it's articulated. Thereby invalidating its utility is a combination of words that could only occur in the context of a correct logical deduction. Moving on. Number five. Or maybe the show has been in decline since the second episode when I changed the default interstitial music from one of Casey's songs to another one of Casey's songs. And maybe it just took a few years for us to begin seeing the results of that decision. Now that would be a correctable problem. Wouldn't it be nice if that were the answer? It clearly isn't, but wouldn't it be nice... Finally, number six, maybe the reason the show is in decline is that I haven't been trusting my instincts enough. Maybe I've been too open to doubt, too open to my own second guessing, and I've got to be honest, this seems like the right answer. To me, this is the possible reason for the podcast's decline that rings the most true. Or is it that most rings true? No, I'm trusting my instincts and sticking with rings the most true. And the reason it rings the most true is that I know deep down in my heart that my instincts are great. I instinctively know to trust my instincts. And my instincts are telling me to trust my instincts more in 2018. And they're also telling me not to bother addressing any of the possible reasons for the podcast decline listed above. And my instincts are also telling me that I should go back to forcing contributors to make sure that their segments adhere to a specific theme for each episode. Let's begin, shall we? Hello, Out of All Doors listeners. My name is Contributor Andrew, 
and I am returning this week to bring you another prose poem. I believe last week I called it a thing, which uh, Adam has uh, said can be described as a prose poem, and I'm not a writer by any stretch of the imagination, so I sort of lack the technical vocabulary. Um, but much to Adam's credit, you know, and the credit of the podcast is th- that it's so creative that it uh, is willing to give a platform to uh, amateur writers and certainly amateur photographers alike, um, sometimes being to its own detriment, although I suppose if your endeavors end up with you living inside of a cardboard box, maybe the onus should be on you to uh, know when you're over your over your skis. That, But that's a weird tangent uh, that I didn't really want to go down. I just meant to say that the uh, podcast is really creative, and I don't think there's anything really like it on the internet. So uh, I'll just uh, thank Adam one more time and start with the poem. Tiedizura Trista, it should be noted, was not our real uncle. We simply called him that because he was a good 30 years our senior and looked after us, not the way a parent does, but the way an uncle would. He would respond to Ziora or Gheorghe and even George, though his English was limited to a handful of rude words. But by far, his most interesting name was his last. It was not a usual name, not even to us, because it wasn't really a name at all, it was a number, Trista, 300. So to see exactly why we found his names so perplexing, you have to imagine knowing a man named Uncle George 300. And I remember one day we asked him, Tiedizioro, why do they call you 300? And this is what he said. You want to know why, Eitzavo? Once, when I was your age, I was hiking through the Balkan Mountains, and as I turned the corner down a little wooded path, I found myself face to snout with a great mother bear and her two cubs, and it froze me in my paces. And this bear, the size of two bears, reared up on her hind legs and roared straight at me. She roared loud enough to wake the dead, the devil, and all his demons where they rested. And once she finished, the world was quiet, save for the scattering of every bird. Then there came a rustling from the undergrowth uh, all along the path, and out came a fourth bear, and then a fifth, and then they started arriving in packs and dozens, until all in all I would say there was about 300 in that place. And for a moment we just watched each other, them and me, and I thought, you can't outrun them. And you can climb a tree, but they will come up there and bring you back down. The only thing you can do when you meet a bear is to make yourself as large and as loud and show them that you're not a fight worth having. This is a big job when you're faced with one bear, but to fend off 300, I had my work cut out for me. 
So I stood up on my toes and raised my arms high above my head and took a deep breath, and I let it fill me down to every millimeter of my lungs. And then I roared back at the bear, and my roar, Tsavo, was twice as loud as the bear's, at least. Loud enough to shake the mountain, and as the mountain quaked, the ground beneath moved and began dragging all the trees and the rocks and brush with it. Nothing resisted, and I watched every bear's face twist in terror as the mountain dragged every one of them back to the devil they came from. And then I walked home, and my mother and all the people of the village were standing at the edge of town when I arrived. And my mother, of course, was relieved to see me, uh, and all the people wanted to know if I was in the mountains when the avalanche happened. And I told them the story I just told you, and that is why they called me 300. Now, Amir, with his keen nose for malarkey, then asked, but how could you know it was 300? You didn't get an accurate account, I'm sure. You could have easily taken at least a hundred more. It was not a perfect joke, but we found it funny at the time, and it stuck too, because to this day we still refer to him as Chitirista. We stop a chimney sweep on the street and offer him much more than the going rate for his chimney brush, or whatever it's called. He happily complies, declaring that he will be able to retire immediately on the money we just gave him, which certainly isn't true, but we did give him much more than the going rate for his chimney brush. Then we head home to deal with our chimney. St. Nicholas really made a mess of our chimney this year. What was he doing in there? There's food smeared all over the inside, and there's trash stuck to that smeared food, not to mention just a general coat of grime and filth. Yes, St. Nicholas really trashed our chimney, and now it needs a good, thorough chimney brushing. But we'd prefer to handle it ourselves so that we don't have to endure the pained, sickened expression of a hired chimney sweep when he or she sees the condition of our chimney, not to mention the fact that many chimney sweeps don't believe in St. Nicholas, so there's a good chance whoever we hired wouldn't believe our explanation and would assume we're just making excuses for the fact that we trashed our own chimney. We steel ourselves, ensuring the strength of our stomachs, affixing stench-blocking masks, pulling on the best gloves we could find, and we crawl into the chimney, some from above and some from below, our plan being to clean toward each other and meet in the middle. But upon entering the chimney, we discover that we have not merely entered the chimney, we have also entered the battery. Sometime deep within the folds of the year 1996, eight people were assembled by a team of researchers, isolated from each other and everyone else for two hours, and then led one by one into a dimly lit room where a bat slept upside down on a perch. They were given no further instructions, but the researchers recorded everything the subjects said and did during their ten-minute encounters with the sleeping bat. The subjects were observed without their knowledge. Here is a selection of some of the things those subjects said and did in that room. One subject said, is that a bat? Is it? It is, isn't it? Isn't it? It is. I knew it was as soon as I saw it. Is it? The subject looked around as if expecting an answer from somewhere. Did he know he was being observed? Is this bat a bat? asked the subject. This is a bat, he declared throwing back his shoulders and thrusting his chest forward, holding this posture for 12 full seconds before his shoulders slumped, and he said, Isn't it? 
One subject sat cross-legged on the floor facing the bat and began to confess to crimes. I once stole half a loaf of bread from a bread loaf store. I rationalized it by pointing out that the sign in the store said, please don't steal a full loaf of bread. I once punched a man in a bar for failing to guess the song I was thinking of, which was actually a medley of three songs. I once robbed a bank in a diamond-encrusted mask that cost three times as much money as the money I was able to abscond with. One subject approached the bat as if to pet it, then hovered her hand less than an inch from its perfect body as if to simply feel the warmth coming from off of the bat, or as if feeling its aura, which is not possible as far as researchers know. The bat did not awaken. Then the subject began to furiously sniff the palm of her own hand. Then the bat woke up and, in the opinion of one of the researchers, looked either a little annoyed or a little creeped out, so the subject was escorted out of the room early. One subject leaned against the wall like a cool film noir private eye, although he was dressed like all the other subjects in an ill-fitting jumpsuit, and said, You're only the second bat I've ever seen in real life. The first one I saw when I was 14. I was staying at my grandma's house for the summer. She lived in another country, doesn't matter which one. The important thing is that she let me stay up much later than my parents, who usually put me to bed at around 9 in the morning. Which may sound ridiculously early, but it's important to note that I usually got up around 7.45 a.m., so that gave me a full hour and 15 minutes of non-bedtime every day. Although I was allowed to sleep in until 8.55 a.m. on Saturdays, so those five-minute days usually felt pretty short. Although you'd be surprised at how much you can accomplish in five minutes if you know that's the only five minutes you're going to have for a 24 hours period. Although admittedly, all I usually accomplished was the throwing of a good fit. But anyway, my grandma let me stay up until 10 p.m. every night, although I wasn't allowed to get up until around 8.15 p.m., bringing my total day time to around an hour and a half. But for me, that extra 15 minutes was amazing. Although on Sundays, I wasn't allowed to get up at all. I just had to stay in bed until 8.15 p.m. on Monday night, so that was pretty rough. But anyway, one night at my grandma's house at exactly 9.18 p.m., 42 whole minutes before I would be sent to bed, I saw a bat outside walking around the yard looking for dropped pennies. I guess bats do that in that country. One subject produced a pipe and a match from somewhere on her person and began to smoke it in the presence of the bat, heedless of its preferences. But the researchers didn't intervene because they didn't know the bat's preferences concerning pipe smoke either, and they didn't want to intervene if the bat liked the pipe smoke. They watched its facial expressions and body language intently, looking for any sign that it liked or did not like the presence of the pipe smoke in the room. The subject between pipe puffs said, They're watching me, aren't they? Those people who said they were researchers? I know you won't answer me. The researchers at this point assumed that the subject was speaking directly to the bat. I have a fear, the subject continued. Some say an irrational fear. I'm afraid that one day I'll be lured into a facility by researchers, isolated and then thrust into a room with a sleeping bat, wherein I'll probably be observed by researchers, and I'll reach for my pipe and a match and I won't have them. They'll be gone. I don't know where they'll have gone. That's my fear. Irrational? You tell me. Again, the researchers believed this subject was speaking to the bat, albeit somewhat rhetorically. One subject immediately woke the bat, shooed it from its perch, tore the perch off of the wall, and used it to bar the door of the room from the inside. 
Then she managed to locate all of the tiny cameras hidden in the room and she used scraps of her clothing affixed to the camera's lenses with pieces of the gum she was chewing to block the observer's views of what was happening in the room. She either could not or did not care to find the tiny microphones hidden in the room, but she made very little sound and so did the bat. After a while, the researchers heard no sound at all. By that point, researchers with explosives had arrived and they used a controlled blast to blow the door of the room open. Inside the room, the researchers found neither the subject, nor the bat, nor any possible means of escape. So they declared their experiment a total disaster, made this declaration official by stamping the experiment's file with a red stamp that said total disaster, and then they sent all the rest of the subjects home without conducting their exit interviews. Inside the chimney, we discovered that the bats have already cleaned it, and thoroughly. We are embarrassed that they felt they had to. Yet also grateful that we didn't end up being the ones who needed to do it. Yet irritated that we spent so much on this chimney sweep brush for which we now have no use. But anyway, since there's nothing to really clean inside the chimney, then there's certainly no reason for all of us to be crammed inside of it. Whatever St. Nicholas and the bats find appealing about the inside of our chimney, we don't see it. Not as a place to hang out anyway. So some of us wriggling downward and some of us squirming upward, we leave the battery. so chipper about it. I'm gonna sound chipper because I am chipper. You can call me Chippy, Mr. Chipperson. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I will not shut up, Ben, because I, for one, am having a grand old time today for our Regarding the Dawn episode. You would. Fellow Regarders of the Dawn, our brothers and sisters of the photograph, I am very chipper today because we have had a massive change of fortunes and our lives have radically changed for the better. Ugh. I, if I was diabetic, I would be in a coma right now. Uh, f- from all this saccharine, Pollyanna, rainbow-licking, unicorn-chasing tripe. Tone it down, Dwayne. I will not tone it down, Eeyore. Uh, if I wasn't driving right now, I would slap you. Thank you for that beautiful segue, Ben. Yes, listeners, you heard him right. We are driving! It's not that big of a deal. We are driving. Woo, calm down. I will not. Listeners, as you heard last month, we are no longer living in an apartment above the bait shop. We are now without a permanent mailing address, and so we have um, <laughs> sort of, well, secured a car to travel with, and we are now starting our own road trip adventure. Starting our own road trip adventure. Starting our own road trip adventure. What's the matter, Ben? You never read On the Road? Oh, gross. No. Can you get any more trendy? No way, dude. I wouldn't touch that book with your librarian. What? You... It's literally the great American road trip novel. How can you not like one of the most important beat movement books of all oh, time? Oh, yes, Dwayne. I'm sure that's what your high school English teacher told you. Yes. You, you mean you you don't... Wait. So so you haven't always wanted to travel across the country to see America and just, you know, 
be oh, like, Oh, Dwayne, sweet, innocent, young, naive Dwayne. Listen, kiddo, I have already seen most of Europe, and I've been all over. Oh, give me a break. Oh, don't be jealous, Dwayne. Again with your European snobbery. I mean, come on, you having the faintest interest in seeing America and, and taking photographs all over the country and, and, and seeing the amazing nature that we have here and, and, and being able to spend our time living as artists, uh, living and traveling like... Like gypsies and... <laughs> oh, Dwayne, Roma are European. Who? Gypsies, Dwayne. Roma is the real name of the traveling peoples who you insensitively referred to as gypsies. And as an honorary member of the Roma tribe, I find your ignorance Oh, to be come incredibly... on. You are not a gypsy, and you, you, you never have Watch been. Watch it. I'll put a hex on you. Oh, I, I can't talk to you when you're like this. <laughs> and you should just cheer up. Whatever. <laughs> What's the matter, Dwayne? Can't take your own medicine? Life is so good out exploring the world, living like a Roma. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Yeah, so good, huh? Look around you. Look at nature flowing by us, Dwayne. It's like we're in the stream of life and the whole of Mother Nature is parading her most beautiful art by us. Aren't you inspired like your hero, the, um, on the road guy? Oh, shut up. Uh, hey, hey, you're right. It is inspiring. I might just... I might just break into spontaneous poetry. What? Yes. Oh, Ben, I think I, I'm feeling so inspired. I might even write enough poetry to have my own segment on Out of All Doors. Oh, Dwayne, oh, you and Adam, I just... Oh. And, and several butchers' aprons. And if he thinks that just because he can string a few random sentences together and call it a... But, but like I said, like I said, kangaroos don't know any better. And like, we are all supposed to just believe that poets just fall from the sky and that this person just contacted Adam out of the blue. So, so then the Albanians, they made it illegal to even just... And then that theme music was commissioned by a poet shaman. And if Adam thinks that he could just use that theme music without sacrificing a pair of albino goats, then he's got a Like I said, and if Casey thinks that he could just make a voice and pretend to be this make-believe Andrew guy, and then he's going to be considered... I mean, that's... He's going to be considered uh, an accessory to grand theft by an international poetry crimes division, and they just... They... Wait. Did you just turn that on? What? Turn, turn what on? You did. You, you had that recorder off while I was talking? Not the whole time. Oh, that's it. That's it. I am, I am pulling over. I have had enough. Tater Tom! Ah! Oh, oh, dang dude. it. Man, oh. dang it, Brooks. Holy crap, my heart is pounding oh, now. You scared us. Don't do that. Oh, sorry, fellas. Just dreaming about Mediterranean trade routes. What? What? Uh, nothing. Oh, you guys making a show right now? Yeah, 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 we're recording. What's the topic this time? Well, um... Travel photography and, and, and life on the road photos and, uh... Ooh-wee, you girls speaking my language. What? Really? I've been doing those for that for years. Let me talk, let me talk. Uh, oh, okay. I, I suppose. Here, yeah. here. I have some of my photography right here in my bag. Look, so this... That there is my buddy Wichita Red sleeping in a dumpster outside of San Antonio in uh, 1992. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> look at uh, look at that. And this is a dog I saw by a river in Tennessee in 2002. 
Oh, yeah, huh. And then this here is Red sleeping in a puddle by the Space Needle in 2016. Oh, oh, hi. <laughs> yeah, you're done. All right, yeah. What? What? You, you mean... You don't like my work? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's just, um, it's, uh, very, um... Minimal. It's very minimal. Well, I mean, uh, one of them has an animal in it, but that's not... No, no, no. Minimal. minimal. I heard you. Oh, sorry. Uh... <laughs> Listen, it's kind of lonely back here. Can I sit up there with you guys? Um, well... <laughs> well, let's wait until we find that shower that we discussed, okay? Oh, well, I saw a car wash back a few blocks. Just spin around. Or uh, the next gas station that has a restroom with a sink that works, you know. Oh, there's a Sinclair. Pull over. Uh, yeah, actually, Ben, that might not be a bad idea. Yeah. Thanks for the candy bar, girls. Uh, uh, Brooks, um... Uh, how, uh... How about you sit in the back, Brooks, uh, till you dry off all the way? Oh, come on, man. It's just good, clean water. It ain't gonna kill you. Well, uh, okay. Uh, all right. Let's see here. Heading west. Oh, I almost forgot. To dry off your beard? Man, you are literally dripping all over, dude. No, no. Look, I found a picture in the trash can in the bathroom for our travel photography show. Ooh, found photography is cool. Let's see. Oh. Oh. <laughs> the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Stop, stop, what? stop. What? Dude, I think you're driving east. <laughs> Ben, we're busking. We made like three dollars for gas. Oh, good call, Brooks and Dumb. Did you did you tell them about our Instagram? Oh crap, I forgot about that. I got it. Hey! Follow us on Instagram and regarding the Dawn Show! See Dwayne? That's how it's done. It's a new year. No, not nude year. New year. But if it were nude year, you'd look a lot better if you adhered to your New Year's resolution to lose weight. And Gentleman's Mills is here to help you do that with our line of cost-conscious, effective weight loss and exercise products and services. Here's some now. Big Nude Brisket. This combination grill slash deep fat fryer is inoperable until its built-in camera detects that you're nude. The camera streams live footage of your nudity to a local assemblage of experts who then affirm your nudity so that Big Nude Brisket turns on. But beware, don some clothing and Big Nude Brisket shuts down and won't be able to be restarted for 24 hours, ruining your cookout. Trudge Mill. With three settings, Swamp, Slop, and Sludge, the Trudge Mill flawlessly replicates the feeling of moving through some of life's very worst walking surfaces. Three-Ton Barbell. 
You'll never be able to lift it, but you will burn many calories by trying and failing. Nude Beach Do's and Don'ts, a step-by-step -step primer. This book, written from prison, is all don'ts. Tread Still. These treadmills do not, cannot, and will not work in the traditional sense, but what they will give you is an incredible experience nonetheless. To operate this next-level machine, simply stand on the tread still and contemplate the idea of motion. You'll burn up to 20 calories per hour. Harvard-based neuroscientist Franz John Sun says the mere act of thinking is very calorically taxing. Tread still harnesses this tiring thinking activity in the most exciting way yet. Heavy yarn. Burn 10 times the calories while you do your regular knitting. Salt substitute. Instead of putting salt in or on your food, try upending a canister of Gentleman's Mills salt substitute over it, which is guaranteed to be full of something other than salt, whether that be tap water, granulated sugar, or whatever else we could find. Note, Gentleman's Mills salt substitute has been known on rare occasions to be nothing more than pure salt. If this happens to you, don't freak out. Extra long jump rope slash extra short jump rope. We still have a bunch of these left over from the days in which we were experimenting heavily with jump rope length, which we still think could revolutionize jumping rope. Help us figure out how. Tasteless chips. While everyone else is trying to make their healthy chips taste better, Gentleman's Mills decided to make our unhealthiest chips taste incredibly bland. You'll never be tempted to cheat on your diet with these chips filling all available shelf space in your pantry. Everything's a ton bathroom scale. No matter how much you really weigh, this bathroom scale always says you weigh exactly 2,000 pounds, so you'll never get complacent. Not advisable for customers with eating disorders. The single greatest crunch. This immensely complex contraption may take up most of your living room, but it's been meticulously designed to aid you in performing one flawless crunch. The single greatest crunch ever performed. While many experts debate the value of the crunch as an exercise, they've never seen a crunch like the single greatest crunch. Anyone attempting to do a second crunch of equal value on the single greatest crunch should consider the plight of Icarus. Death. Yoga Helmet. With the immense popularity of yoga pants, surely there's room in the market for a yoga helmet. Push-up Bead Bag. For every voluntary push-up you do, put one colored bead in the Gentleman's Mills push-up bead bag. After 12 push-ups, your push-up bead bag will be full and it'll be time for a new one. Gentleman's Mills does not sell colored beads and does not know where one might acquire them. Our business is push-up bead bags, not colored beads. Fish Shot Fish is good for you, but many don't like it. Until they get fish shot from Gentleman's Mills, fish shot is a special substance that we inject straight into the top of your tongue with a needle long enough to go all the way through your tongue, but it doesn't. 30 minutes after fish shot, and you'll love the taste of fish for up to three minutes. Get as much fish into you as you can in that three minutes, because when it's up, you'll go back to despising fish as well as many other foods that you previously enjoy. Doctors advise getting fish shot zero times, but they only forbid getting fish shot more than four times, so make those four times count. Ankle weights. These gruesome weights are fashioned from the ankles of amputated legs. They don't weigh very much. Vertical skillet. 
you won't be eating nearly as many pancakes when they keep sliding off of Gentleman's Mill's vertical skillet, and that can't be anything but great news for your waistline. Get Ripped, Instantly Permanent Edition. Tired of training and training and training and training and training and training and just getting no results? Don't gripe, get gripe. Get Ripped Instantly Permanent Edition, that is. This large lathe removes from the body ugly layers of fat, hair, tissue, and dermis, revealing the smooth, defined muscle beneath. Grape. This tasty, juicy, delicious, individually wrapped grape arrives in the mail every day and constitutes your entire meal for that day, so you'd better savor it. Watch the pounds melt off as you become more and more faint due to extreme malnutrition. Medicine ball. This item comes packaged as a weighted medicine ball with which to work out, but actually it's full of non-FDA approved, dangerously potent metabolism boosters that will flood your bloodstream with jolting surges of heart-stopping fat burners. Close them. To what does them refer? Your eyes lie down, relax. You find yourself standing over a broken down snowmobile in the middle of a snow-covered field while snow falls thick-flaked all around you. You're holding a huge wrench with both hands. You're dressed warmly, you feel fine other than your frustration at the not-workingness of the snowmobile. The very same one that you just got for Christmas one week ago. The one that had literally crushed all of your other presents when your parents wrapped it and put it near the Christmas tree for you to find on Christmas morning. Adding to your misfortune is the fact that when your younger brother said you'd better memorize the owner's manual in case the snowmobile ever broke down, you haughtily flung the manual into the Christmas bonfire in the backyard and declared, I needn't memorize a darn thing. My wrench is enormous. As the bonfire blazed momentarily brighter, fed and fueled by consumption of the knowledge contained in your snowmobile's owner's manual. Now, of course, you wish you'd, well, not memorized the owner's manual, but at least not burned it. It'd be pretty useful right now. It'd be a nice thing to have tucked in your pocket. You're starting to realize that the size of the wrench doesn't have much bearing on how effectively you're able to utilize it. In fact, you're starting to realize that the size may actually be a detriment. It's not an adjustable wrench, which means that it doesn't actually fit any of the wrenchable components of your new broken-down snowmobile. The more you look at your snowmobile, the more you're struck with the realization that you know very, very little about the mechanics of not only snowmobiles, but everything. You try to hurl the huge wrench in a rage, but it's so big and heavy that it just sort of tumbles out of your hands and into a snowdrift where it disappears. So what are you going to do? You reach into your coat pocket for your phone and discover that it's been smashed into little pieces, probably as a result of you landing on top of the huge wrench after being tossed from the snowmobile when it broke down. You turn in a complete circle, looking around you in all directions. There isn't much to see. Your snowmobile's tracks are already mostly covered. You don't know which direction you came from, so you're not sure how to walk back to your house. You decide that the best thing to do is to just sit down with your back against the broken down snowmobile and wait for someone to notice you're missing, look for you, and find you. You sit down. The snow piles around and on top of you. You're very grateful for your warm clothes. You're almost completely buried in snow, and yet you don't feel cold at all. That's borderline miraculous. Then a chill runs up your spine. 
Not because you're cold, but because you remember someone telling you that when a person gets really cold, they start to feel warm. Is that why you feel warm? Because you're actually extremely cold? But then you remember that someone else told you that one of the surest signs that you're actually warm is that you actually feel warm. This thought heartens you a bit. But how can you know for sure whether the fact that you feel warm means that you're warm or means that you're cold? You look down at yourself and see nothing but whiteness. Then you realize the snow has covered your face. You poke two little holes in the snow for your eyes and one for your mouth and look down at yourself. You look like a vaguely human-shaped lump of snow. You hope that someone finds you soon. You're now wishing that the note you left at your house had read, If I'm not back in one hour, come looking for me, instead of, If I'm not back in three weeks, come looking for me. Because you want to be found now, and you've been gone a lot closer to one hour than to three weeks. You freshen your eye and mouth holes in the snow since they've already begun to fill over again. One nice thing about this situation is how quiet it is. The snow muffles everything, especially now that it has covered your ears. That's one reason why you wanted to get out of the house this afternoon. All the noise, mostly from the parents, as usual. And that's why you specifically requested the silent snowmobile on your Christmas list, despite the fact that it had numerous poor ratings because of its unreliability. One particularly memorable online review from user online snowmobile review writer 12456394856829194985833198756 said, What's the point of a silent snowmobile if it breaks down less than an hour after you start using it? And the only way to get it running long enough to get it home again is to follow the simple two-step process presented on page one of the user's manual. Yes, you have some regrets, but it's so hard to think in that house. The parrots make it extremely difficult. And what are they even talking about? Just repeating your dad's favorite mathematical formulas over and over again, only slightly less screechily than he does during his bi-weekly recitations from the podium in the parrot room. The parrots all crowded around him with their fake little microphones that your mom convinced you to make for them so they'd look like a media scrum. Why did you ever agree to make those microphones? Well, you know why. It was because your mom bribed you with promises of trips to the library once the ladies and gentlemen club is finished delicately washing all the books. The snow on top of you is getting heavy now. You can feel it weighing down on you. The eye and mouth holes are deep now. It's like looking out of two long tubes. It's like breathing through one long tube. You hear nothing except for your own heartbeat pounding inside of your ears, which is strange because your heart, you've always assumed, is in your chest like everyone else's. Without knowing exactly why, you begin to scoop down inside of the snow. You press your arms to your sides and wriggle into a prone position on the ground, still beneath the snow. You look up and see that the snow that had piled on top of you is holding its shape. You manage to roll onto your stomach and begin to tunnel away from the snowmobile. The snow cooperates. It does not cave in on top of you. After you've tunneled for approximately 15 yards, you stand up out of the snow and look back toward the snowmobile. You see the rough shape of the snowmobile beneath the snow and the rough shape of yourself leaning against it. The two holes for your eyes, the one hole for your mouth. Somewhere in the distance you hear the growl of an engine, the barking of one, no, two dogs. You hold the gaze of the snow you, your eyes locked with the snow you's eye holes. You watch snow you for signs of life, snow you does the same to you. You are nervous about turning your back on snow you, snow you doesn't move either. Parting with Snow You is starting to feel like a mistake. Should you really leave Snow You here unattended? What might happen if you do? What might not happen? You imagine Snow You must feel empty in the same way that you feel exposed. 
Behind you, the engine comes closer. So do the dogs. With great effort, you turn to look. Here comes a team of two dogs pulling a huge snowblower. Behind the snowblower walks a man in regular shoes. You turn back just in time to see Snow You lurch slowly and clumsily upright. Turn. Trudge toward the front end of the broken-down snowmobile, even more silent in its broken-downness than it was while running. The dog's barking becomes frenzied. You turn to look back at them in time to see the man in regular shoes slashing the dog's harnesses loose with a long blade. The dogs tear through the snow, so loud, so loud. They race past you and are on Snow You a second later, reducing Snow You to slush and powder before Snow You is able to take even ten total steps on Snow Your Own. How do you feel about that? And now open your eyes, but as you do, take the peace of being respected enough to not be told how to feel about a complicated, confusing set of circumstances with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors.